welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in Acts chapter 13. We're going to find ourselves landing on a topic that is, is more than just a little bit important, but essential uh, for those who are called by God to enter into some uh, sort or some form of formal Christian ministry, uh, a calling, uh, sometimes as a missionary, other times as a pastor. And uh, that topic is the scriptural principle of being set apart through the laying on of hands. Uh, That will be seen in our passage today. Now, uh, a calling uh, by God to enter ministry, that that is such an expansive topic. We'll never be able to call uh, call it all today. Uh, It's impossible just to to, uh, to cover that entirely. Uh, we're going to talk about laying on of hands today, and I'm going to quickly get right down to it with uh, just a little introduction uh, before reading verses 1 through 3. And I only ask that as we begin uh, to remember that Saul and Barnabas have just returned to their home church in Antioch after delivering famine relief to the saints in Jerusalem uh, who, who have been enduring increased scrutiny and severe persecution at this point, and the passage we're about to read occurs in the shadow of the grave news that the Apostle James has been beheaded. In fact, it may well be that it is through Saul and Barnabas that the church in Antioch learns that James is dead. We, we can't know that for sure. Uh, but regardless, following the famine and the Christian persecution in Jerusalem, uh, the death of James has surely had a sobering effect upon the church. I might as well begin reading at the last verse of chapter 12, as we covered that last week, but verse 25, there we read, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So now we can, can see in Scripture uh, how 
how the Bible offers a clear distinction between local congregations. Uh, There is now described a church in Antioch, uh, yet because many of the apostles are still in Jerusalem, uh, some theologians refer to that as the mother church, but Antioch is now clearly classified as another church. And from this point forward, every place that the gospel is is locally embraced, we're going to find that there are distinct churches popping up all over the place. Local congregations begin rising. And it is true that Jesus Christ is building one church, his church, his body, that is inclusive of all believers... From, from across every denomination and generational boundary of time and space. But the body of Christ also becomes manifest in many geographical locations called, called churches. Uh, much like we are here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, Antioch is a very real local church. The Greek term there, church, is ekklesia, uh, which describes an, an orderly congregation, an orderly assembly of believers. From that, we get the term uh, ecclesiology, which, which is the study of the church and how it is to, to function properly and, and in a godly manner, instructions on in how to do church. Um, today is very much a lesson on ecclesiology, uh, not so much an evangelistic message today, um, but this is important for us as a local congregation, and this is the text which we land on. This local church in Antioch, it, it has become a very special place through which the Holy Spirit energizes and, and equips believers to expand our Lord's mission To seek and save that which was lost, we read in Luke 19, verse 10. Now, salvation of souls is not the only mission of a local church, but it remains the primary mission of every local church, or that local church will eventually die. If there occurs no winning of souls, no discussion of evangelism, uh, there might still be people walking through the door on Sunday morning, but such a church will eventually turn spiritually dead and die. Not Antioch. Antioch is alive. Antioch is vibrant, which makes it especially... uh, uh, helpful, especially beneficial for us to study. Uh, back in Acts 11, verse 21, uh, we learned in the city of Antioch, a large number had believed and turned to the Lord. And after Barnabas arrived, and, and he began encouraging everybody to remain faithful, uh, that is a crucial responsibility of every Christian. Uh, there were, Acts 11, verse 24, considerable numbers being brought to the Lord. Uh, So healthy churches win souls. Similar to our passage today, we, we are told in the book of Revelation that the Spirit of God spoke. 
there it was through the writing of the Apostle John to a local church uh, named Sardis that's located in Asia Minor. Uh, The Spirit said, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Uh, Of course, the book of Revelation there says in seven different occasions in seven different churches, uh, he who has ears, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. That divine message, the Spirit speaking, came to Sardis and and all of those uh, seven churches in the form of a letter, an an epistle written by the pen and and through the hand of the Apostle John in Revelation, uh, we read. And and the Spirit's voice came through loud and clear, said, wake up. Last Sunday in our adult Bible class, or adult Sunday school, and during our first lesson in, in, in the booklet, Before You Share Your Faith, I, I still have a, a couple left here. Um, it was asked, you know, during the seasons of highs and lows in evangelism, there, there are seasons that we seem to be more effective and then we fall off. It was asked by Josh last, last week, uh, how can we maintain our passion? for evangelism. And one of my suggestions at the time was we must be constantly talking about it. We must be consistently speaking about evangelism and the people who we're trying to win to keep it front and center in the minds of all of us together so that we can be encouraged to continue in the Lord's work. By observing our passage, Antioch is a healthy church. Antioch is a soul-winning church, and therefore it is a growing church. And due to these reasons, Antioch also becomes a sending church. A a, a sending church. Don't miss this point today. A, A church cannot be a sending church if it is not first a healthy church and a growing church. And we will understand why as we proceed. One of the qualities that made Antioch so healthy is that Scripture was taught there. The Bible was taught. Uh, Back in chapter 11, verse 26, we we remember that Barnabas and Saul had initiated a, a Bible study program or at least the Old Testament scriptures, which they had in our possession, we're told that they met with the church, that they taught considerable numbers uh, together as a church. They were leaning, learning the scriptures. Uh, as a result of that formal training, coming together in church and learning, as a result of that, Acts 13 verse 1 supplies a list of prophets and teachers. You know, we've learned together previously that to prophesy means to speak God's word. And to teach means to explain God's word. So, verse 1 reveals Antioch benefited from a variety of 
Bible expositors who would speak the word and teach the word. Ben Witherington III, the Methodist theologian I've quoted a few times. He has a commentary uh, on Acts, uh, not an endorsement of Methodism at all. But Ben, ben is a Greek scholar and quite insightful on many things. Uh, he writes how grammatically, quote, it is impossible to be certain which were prophets and which teachers, or if they were all meant to be seen as both. Paul and Barnabas, however, have already been portrayed as being teachers in Antioch. It's verse 26 of chapter 11 he cites. And Paul is about to be portrayed as a prophet in chapter 13. Uh, Perhaps it is best to be understood the list. He's referring to the list in verse 1. Perhaps it is best to be understood uh, to understand the list to refer to those who were both teachers and prophets, both informing and inspiring, being themselves informed and inspired. They would speak the word. They would teach the word. A combined office is how one Methodist describes the function of prophets and teachers. Uh, The reformer John Calvin seems to agree. Note that. Writing in his commentary, quote, I think that it signifies excellent interpreters of Scripture, and such had the office to teach and exhort. A local church cannot be healthy if it is not clearly speaking forth God's Word, prophesying, and explaining God's Word, teaching. Next, we see that Antioch was blessed with some diversity. You know, a healthy church's teachers, uh, they're abundant and they are varied. Of, of course, Saul and Barnabas, we know they are Jews. Next is Simeon, who is called Black. His nickname was Niger. Lucius came from Cyrene, that is modern-day Libya. And Menaean was raised in the same house, the Greek suggests, that Menaean was literally a foster brother to Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, uh, who had beheaded John the Baptist. This guy grew up with him. Antipas was, was the uncle of Herod Agrippa, who had just beheaded James. So so Antioch benefited from at least five, I suspect probably even more than five, capable teachers who had studied the Bible under the tutelage of Barnabas and Saul for at least an entire year, Acts 11 verse 26 says, by this time, by this time, probably a couple years or more. Uh, so they were there were multiple gifted men uh, who after studying together for a serious season, uh, a couple of years at least, when asked to teach, you know, didn't cry, I'm still not ready, you know. Uh, We have guys that are ready. Guys with names like Angelo and Jeff and Mike and, and Mike, Anthony and Trevor, um, they, they've all embraced certain roles of teaching. 
multiple men with diverse giftedness, very different from one another, but all uh, all speaking forth the word of God. Uh, the, the men in verse 1, they were ready for this day. They were prepared for this day because they were already serving and they were already teaching. They, they had learned to hold down the fort while Barnabas and Saul uh, were away delivering famine relief to Jerusalem. And when Saul and Barnabas returned, verse 2 states that they were all together ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now resist, uh, resist the temptation to over-spiritualize uh, that phrase, ministering to the Lord. Ministering to the Lord is, is simply what men in leadership do every week. Ministry. Suggests that they were preaching the word, they were leading prayer, they were serving the Lord's supper, they were, they were baptizing new converts. Uh, the term ministering there, uh, liturgio, uh, it's similar to our English term liturgy, and it means to serve publicly, serve in front of people, and to serve religiously. John MacArthur writes, quote, This is from a Greek word which in Scripture describes priestly service. Uh, serving and leadership in the church is an act of worship to God and consists of offering spiritual sacrifices to Him, including prayer, oversight to the flock, plus teaching and preaching of the Word. You know, essentially what we find in verse 1 the list of men, it contains men of God who, uh, verse 2, had remained faithful week in and week out in a liturgical uh, type of routine of public ministry. They're getting after it. They were serving week in and week out. You know, you don't have to be in occupational ministry very long to discover that the average man can't, can't handle a weekly commitment. You mean I have to make announcements every week? I have to show up to the meeting, the, the pre-worship meeting early every week? Yeah. I need to lead worship? I need to practice? I need to sing? Every week? Need to clean. Need to unlock the doors and turn on the lights and the AC in the building every, every week? Yeah. You mean that grass grows every week? <laughs> yep. And somebody mows that. Yeah, yeah. There are infants to be cared for every week. Yeah, and devoted men and women do mundane tasks week in. And week out, Sunday schools are taught, carpet is vacuumed, slides are put up. I, I still have no idea. The singing slides, I don't know who does that. I got a pretty good idea. But people share those, those responsibilities, ministering to the Lord and His church. You know, our, benef our church benefits from um, just a, uh, a multiplicity of skilled and devoted faithful people. Uh, they're the ones who, who've said, I've, I've sat on the sidelines long enough. 
know, since moving to Florida, they say, you know, I've seen everything at Disney World twice. And I'm ready to minister to the Lord. And particularly in regard to roles of Christian leadership. You know, a local church cannot exist without faithful men who will minister to the flock, uh, to do visitation, to serve, to lead devotionals, corporate prayers, preach and teach the Word of God publicly every single week. So make a church healthy. And to offer oneself to care for our Lord's flock is what, in the mundane things, or seemingly mundane to us, offering oneself to care for our Lord's flock is what verse 2 means when it says they were ministering to the Lord. They They were ministering to the Lord Jesus through His church, and ministry is week in and week out routine. What is not routine in the passage and what is irregular about the setting is this reference to fasting. Now, if you want a full treatment on fasting, biblical fasting, uh, I've preached a full message uh, on biblical fasting and you can find it on our website. It's, it's from January 8th of 2017 uh, and it is titled, Simple, Biblical Fasting. Listen, and you will discover biblically. There isn't a lot of argument over this because we don't really like to go without food, do we? There's some people who just really, just really gets at them. Um, Listen to that message, and you will discover that biblically, fasting is a spiritual and a physical reaction to intense grief. Virtually always over sin or the severe dominion that sin exercises over a people. John MacArthur correctly suggests in his study Bible uh, that it can be described either as a loss of appetite or a purposeful setting aside of food. You know, commonly the consequences of sin can make you sick. Sick to the stomach, often to the point you don't even want to eat. Fasting is never, in Scripture, suggested as a method of advancing or accelerating your personal sanctification. Sorry. Prayer and supplication are. And the New Testament affirms that we are primarily sanctified through The diligent study of the word. In John 17, verse 17, for one example, Jesus prays for his disciples to the Father, saying, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's a very clear statement about the the process of sanctification. But if, if fasting served as a means of making you more holy... Uh, making us more holy, the New Testament epistles, especially the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, would have described it and prescribed it somewhere. 
There would have been provided a theological statement, a declaration, a treatment of it somewhere in the New Testament, but throughout uh, the apostles and other New Testament writers speak expansively about the process of sanctification. Uh, Fasting is never mentioned by Paul or Peter or James or Jude or even John in their epistles as a method of sanctification or be being established before our Lord as holy. Uh, it's not established as a mechanism in Scripture uh, leading to sanctification. Well, if it were effective for that, we would, we would receive a treatment on it. Fasting is a reaction to the devastating effects of sin. The mechanism and the means of sanctification or becoming holy and set apart to the Lord and His work, it is the Word of God. Sanctification comes not through abstaining from food. Uh, One more reference here that I thought of earlier this morning. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the Hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience is with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in, in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. That's something. Christ's bride, the body of Christ, is sanctified through the cleansing power of the word. In Ephesians 5 verse 26, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle. This is the result of washing with the word, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We become sanctified through the cleansing, the washing effects of the word of God and prayer. Um, This is why... For Christians who routinely miss the corporate ministering to the Lord together, the process of sanctification is is painfully slow. They're not in the Word, not being washed, not together studying the Word as Menaean and Lucius and Simeon and the others were week to week. Again, that process of sanctification just becomes painfully slow. Fasting can't substitute. It was actually the Pharisees who taught that they became holy through repeated and prescribed fasts. But biblical fasting is a spiritual, even a physical, bodily reaction to a deeply held agony related to dreadful consequences of sin. Old Testament prophets typically fasted 
wore sackcloth, even at times sat in ashes. After Israel had committed grave offenses against God and their fellow man, they expressed it. They expressed their sickness over sin through fasting and wearing sackcloth and sitting in ashes, among other things. Um, Unlike explanation given by many of the Old Testament prophets, no specific explanation is given in Acts chapter 13 as to why the leaders in Antioch were fasting. We, we, we don't know. I personally believe, you're free to disagree with this, I personally believe in this context and looking at the, the, the expression of fasting throughout the Old Testament, I personally, personally believe it is their reaction to the news brought back by Saul and Barnabas that James had been beheaded. Think, think about that for a second. One of the apostles had had his head severed from his body. And it pleased the Jews, we learned just a couple weeks ago. The Jews were pleased with this in Jerusalem. I think Antioch was saddened. They were sickened when they had heard about the gravity of the sins committed by Israel against the Lord's apostles. Remember, John MacArthur writes that fasting, quote, can either describe a loss of appetite or a purposeful setting aside of food. In this case, it may have been both. Whatever was the ultimate cause, something really made the spiritual leadership in Antioch sick to their stomachs. And as a reaction, they were ministering, and they were fasting, and they were praying. You know, we used to have an associate pastor here. I'll preserve his name as anonymous who's now pastoring a church up in Ohio. And when I recently talked to him on the phone, it's seven to 10 days ago or so, he stated, this is leading up to this, he stated just, just casually that he had not previously experienced so many stomach problems before becoming a senior pastor. <laughs> you experience some circumstances that make you physically ill. Stomach sickness is a reality in pastoral ministry. I told him, Gerald, you know you're supposed to take a little bit of wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Of course, he laughed. He doesn't touch his stuff. During our earlier scripture reading, I do not believe that it is a random Unrelated coincidence that Timothy's stomach problems are referenced by Paul in the midst of confrontations Timothy was having 
over ecclesiastical church consequences because of sin accused of leadership in Ephesus. Timothy was sick. Similarly, here in Acts chapter 1, I believe the leaders in Antioch are sickened over the circumstances in Jerusalem and while fasting, abstaining from food for one reason or another, they inquire of the Lord somewhat in this way. Lord, the the tribulation we must endure. The the punishment that is endured for your holy name. What are we to do? What are we to do? And in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Whenever a tragedy has left a church wondering what it should do, the answer is always the same. You drive forward with the gospel. You you identify persons who are set apart by God for that task. For years, Barnabas and Saul have been preparing and are prepared for a ministry to the Gentiles. These same men had been teaching and training leaders, some of them Gentiles, to, to step up and lead in Antioch. Prophets and teachers they were. And Saul and Barnabas have been observed by the local church as faithful to the ministry of the word for years. For years they have proven. Uh, they, they even just returned from a short-term mission, mission trip to Jerusalem supplying famine relief. They've been faithful. And, and now they need to be set apart by the church for the task to which God has called them. Folks, this happens all the time in churches. In healthy churches. The local church identifies who has been faithful. And if that individual or those individuals uh, have proven themselves spiritually gifted for a particular task, it is a calling. And the leaders of the church lay hands on them and designate them to it. It Happened back in Acts chapter 6. And the laying on of hands by the presbytery, it's another way of saying the board of elders, the leadership of the church. The laying on of hands by the presbytery, it's not a mystical device to put power into people. See, it's a practical device for the church. And by laying on hands, the elders publicly announce, we have sufficiently observed and identified this person as faithful and prepared for the task which God has called them to do. Usually it's a specific mission of some kind or a ministry somewhere. And uh, that, that, that mission may include 
a Bible translation in India, or, or pastoring a church in Ohio, but a church has got to make that determination. The individual doesn't get to determine alone by themselves that they are called by God into ministry. Individual doesn't get to determine that alone by themselves. No no individual can sufficiently self-assess their spiritual giftedness and calling. It's the, the local church that assesses an individual's temperament, their behavior, their qualifications, and their calling over a period of time, usually a lengthy period of time. The church recognizes when an individual is called by God. Certainly that individual is going to sense a call, but the church is going to affirm that call. The person's immediate, immediate believing family, their believing family, will also affirm the call. I would never ordain or lay hands on a candidate for foreign missions or, or as a pastor whose family wasn't on board. But the family doesn't ordain. That, that's not the entity in Scripture that ordains. It's only the local church to which they belong that is authorized by God to make that determination, you are called. And it is the elders or the presbytery in particular who must affirm that the person is prepared. Uh, The laying on of hands is the local church's stamp of approval. That's what it is. The laying on of hands is the local church's stamp of approval. You know, it's very common to have people knock at our door here at church throughout the week uh, who want to present their mission or, or their ministry and solicit financial support from us as an organization, from this congregation. My usual first question is, what church has sent you? back when Rita and I would visit a church before coming here, visit throughout the stages of our Christian life, uh, one of the first questions for the pastor of that church would be, if it hadn't been answered online or some other place, uh, my question would be, what church ordained you? Who who found you capable and, and competent? Because the characteristics of their sending church will tell you a lot about someone, if they have one. There are way, way too many self-ordained missionaries and pastors who have started their own ministries and their own churches who have never proven themselves faithful in any local church. They've never served week in and week out. They've never excelled in teaching. They've never proven they can overlook offenses. They can't endure high-pressure situations or persevere through difficult relationships. And no credible church will lay hands on them. 
you don't just lay hands upon anyone because when they wreck out a ministry, our scripture reading from 1 Timothy chapter 5 revealed to us, you share in responsibility of their sins. In verse 22, Paul commanded Timothy, it's a command, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. When a presbytery, a board of elders of a church lays on hands, it is a formal endorsement of that person to ministry. We refer to it as commissioning or ordination are words that are used. And they will take that formal endorsement, usually accompanied with a written certificate of ordination. They will take that endorsement and apply it to exercising authority and influence over others, over sheep. Now, Scripture says we must be careful who we lay hands on. I've only done this one time to one man. The local church does it. If you ordain a man who you do not know, have not observed over a long period of time their character traits, have not qualified through examination, you share in responsibility for the sins and the turmoil which they commit. Because you've been irresponsible in placing them into ministry. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, do not lay hands on too quickly. You know, ordination, people talk about ordination. It's not just a theological test of somebody who you don't know. You don't just get a board of examiners who don't know the individual and see if they can quote scripture accurately. You don't know who you're dealing with. They might be a scholar, they might have a brain, but can they minister to the Lord weekly? In addition, we we normally, or we don't normally, lay hands on deacons or elders because we're not sending them out. Elders and deacons serve locally, so behavior is monitored locally. Nonetheless, even then, after a long list of character qualifications for elders and deacons are given, are told to uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Even there, he says, these men must first be tested. They have to be tested. For those we we send out, we don't lay hands on too quickly, and there must be an extended period of testing of character through service to the local church. There's no substitute for the process. There is no alternate process. And this is one way we know that the Spirit isn't speaking to us today in the same way as we see in verse 2. God's call of Saul and Barnabas was accompanied by a prophetic utterance 
And then with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Later on, we're going to see that Timothy is, uh, is singled out in the same way, 1 Timothy 4.14. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. Spirit said that. How did he say it? He said it through tongues. Someone in Antioch, one of these leaders, uttered this in a language they had never studied or learned, and somebody else in that diverse city who had grown up with that language interpreted the Spirit's message so everyone else could hear. It'd be like if I were to break out in perfectly fluent Russian and say that we're sending Steve to the moon. And someone else who grew up speaking perfectly fluent Russian can say, this is what he said. I've never spoken Russian. Not yet. Not yet. No, since Pentecost, this is the established norm of how the Holy Spirit speaks. Saw it at Pentecost in Jerusalem. We've seen it as we progress through Acts Spirit speaks through tongues. It's a prescription for it in 1 Corinthians. You've got to have the person speaking. You've got to have the interpreter. No one's able to interpret. The person's to remain silent. You know the whole, the whole spiel. And if the Spirit was still doing so, at the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy... Paul would have not needed to warn Timothy to not lay on hands too hastily. Instead, Paul would have told Timothy, wait to lay on hands till the Holy Spirit speaks. And then just do what the Spirit says. But that's not Paul's instruction to the church in the pastoral epistles at all. Paul wrote to Corinth how tongues would cease. Then later, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, don't rush this laying on of hands until there has been a sufficient time of observation or you will share in that person's sins. Timothy was not to be expecting the Holy Spirit to speak as the Spirit had previously. So ultimately, a church doesn't send in this exact same way as seen in verse 3. Then when they had fasted, or more accurately, when they had finished their fasting. It's because when the Spirit spoke, they were already fasting. So verse 3, when they had finished their fasting, they picked themselves up, they dusted themselves off, they took some food, and they set their minds to the work God had prepared for them. And when their fast was complete, then they prayed and they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them away. I think the lesson of God's message to Antioch in their time of need is this. Tribulation has come. Times are tough. The suffering and the persecution are real. But enough of the grieving and the mourning, enough of the fasting. You can't sit there and grieve forever. There's too much work to do. Pick yourselves up 
and set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And at the end of verse 3, it reveals that they sent them away. They let them go. Literally, the Greek states that they released them. Church released them from service. They let them go. The Greek term there is often used to describe someone who was a prisoner or a captive who was set free. Let them go. The church might say, but there are stars. Barnabas and Saul, they're the cream of the crop. How's any local church going to be able to let its best people go? They can because Saul and Barnabas had already poured themselves into others. Raising up men like Simeon and Lucius and Menaean and others like them who would take charge and move forward. You know, have you ever visited a local church that was totally reliant upon one man to teach and lead? That's not a healthy situation. I I, I can almost assure you that such a man would suffer from stomach problems. A local church will never become a missional sending church unless it is first a teaching church, has cultivated a diversity of leadership within the church, and has proven itself to be a growing church. And Barnabas and Saul had diligently trained their replacements. And it was for these reasons that Antioch was able to to set them apart and release them to go and do the work of the gospel. We've laid hands on one man since I've been here, 10 years. We didn't do it in reaction to a prophetic utterance through a tongue. But after a lot of diligence and hard work by the individual, the theological training accompanied by a sufficient period of assessment and observation, then we released him. And the only reason we were able to adjust was because we had others who were trained and ready to step in and fill the voids that were created when Gerald left. We got a photo up there. Young man, old man, you're doing what Simeon and Lucius and Menaean had done in Antioch. You're rising up week to week, ministering to the Lord and caring for Christ's church. At that commissioning ceremony, just before he left, it might have been a day after he left. He was getting out of town quick after that, wasn't he? Do you remember what Gerald said? Several things he said. Um, But he said, thank you for pouring your life into me. Do it again. Don't stop with me. Do it again. 
And God has placed a lot of work before us as a church. If we want to remain a healthy church, a a vibrant church, a teaching church, a growing church, and a sending church, we need to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, take some food, strengthen yourself, and get to the very heart of what God has set before us in Port St. Lucie. It's time to preach Christ. It's time to go reach the lost. I was thinking, preparing this message, I'm like, boy, this isn't very evangelistic around Christmas. Like, this isn't very Christmassy. Then as I was just wrapping up this morning, I was thinking to myself, Ascending church. That's exactly what Christmas is about. For for God sent His Son on a mission. To be born of a virgin. To to live a sinless life. To to preach Himself as Christ to, to the lost. And He died on a cross for our sins before rising again from the dead. Exactly. This is what is most appropriate during the Christmas season. What could be more appropriate for Christmas than the topic of sending? So as we depart today, we're sending you. Go out, win the lost, preach Christ, be the church, And show the love that God has displayed to us. Let's pray. Holy Father, there is a lot of work to do. And you have left us here for a reason. Uh, Though you took your son and uh, he is seated at your right hand. Um, waiting for the proper moment in time uh, when he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Still, that time hasn't come. That means you are still building his church through the Spirit and by the gospel message which has been entrusted to us. And as we enter now today, uh, this first Sunday in the Christmas season, Father, send us out with that message you've asked us to bear. Father, we pray for Gerald, even his stomach problems. Strengthen him for the work you have there and uh, use him in a mighty way to do the exact same thing and replicate. Do it again, he said. We pray that he'll have the the wisdom and the strength to do it again uh, up there in Bucyrus, Ohio. Thank you for for the camaraderie that we've shared. Lord, thank you for these young men and old men who teach and preach and serve and minister week in, week out. We see you being glorified through their lives and strengthened each one of us, for the work that you've called us. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.